InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. Derek Thompson is a senior editor at The Atlantic magazine and a weekly news analyst for NPR's Here and Now. And he's the author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Derek, I guess you'd say that Hitmakers tells a lot of history and backstory behind pop culture hits and how they became so popular. And you say that the best hitmakers are gifted at creating moments of meaning by marrying old and new. They are architects of familiar surprises. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. We live in a culture right now that places an enormous amount of value on new stuff, on being aware of new trends and new news-breaking stories and new music and new art. But from psychological history, from the history of the psychological discipline, We've learned over and over that people are most reliably captivated and entranced by that which is sneakily familiar. We do like new music, but we prefer new music that sounds a lot like old songs that we've already decided that we like. We like new movies, but every year this century, actually, a majority of the top 10 films in America have been sequels, adaptations, and reboots. So it would seem to me that there is this myth of novelty that sort of pervades pop culture. But the best hit makers, as you just said, are precisely those who understand how to sell both at the same time. At one point in the book, I offer by way of sort of a marketing aphorism, I say, to sell something familiar, make it surprising. But to sell something surprising, make it familiar. You talk about a guy named Raymond Lowy, who was a fabled industrial designer, and he had a catchphrase, which was Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. Is that pretty much the same concept as you were just talking about? Yes, that is exactly the concept that I'm talking about. Most advanced yet acceptable is one of the most elegant, I think, summaries of this idea of familiar surprises. Raymond Lowy, for those who are not aware, was essentially like the Don Draper meets Steve Jobs of the 20th century. This is a guy who designed the 1953 Studebaker car, among the more famous car designs of the 20th century. He designed the modern Greyhound bus, the modern Pennsylvania railway locomotive, the modern tractor, the interior of the first NASA spaceship and even that pencil sharpener that looks like an egg with a little spindle coming out of it. He designed that as well. And it's really interesting to think, you know, how did this one guy understand what people wanted across the economy? Well, this is how. He had this theory, Maya, most advanced yet acceptable, that essentially said the key to making things that people like is to make things with an understanding for the fact that they enjoy advanced products that are at the same time acceptable to their personal familiarities. What do you mean when you say nothing really goes viral? I mean, when a certain craze suddenly explodes, if it is not viral, what's happening? Well, it's a little complicated, but let me try to make it simple. When we say that thing just went viral, we often mean it as sort of filler for I don't know why that thing got popular, but it seemed to have gotten popular pretty quickly. But in epidemiology, virality means something very specific. It means that I pass disease to someone, they pass disease to someone else, they pass disease to other people, and the disease sort of moves person to person. And for a while, people thought, you know, maybe information spreads like this. Certainly a rumor might spread like this, purely person to person. But the reason that things seem to go popular so quickly on the Internet is not pure organic one-to-one sharing. It's because a lot of pieces of content enjoy moments of one to one million sharing. 
maybe a celebrity will tweet it out. Maybe another celebrity will put it on their Facebook account. Maybe Drudge will put it at the top of his homepage. All of these moments are broadcast moments. Millions of people are attending to each of these places on the internet. And as I spoke with data scientists about how things went viral, they all told me just this. They said things don't seem to spread organically, exclusively person to person. Most things that seem to go viral benefit from one of these broadcast moments. We're talking with Derek Thompson, who is the author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. And despite that subtitle, you state that the science of popularity is not a science at all, but a game of chance. What does that mean? Well, I think that we'd like to think that things that become extremely popular are the best in class. We want to think that they earn this in some way, that there was some element of inevitability in their success. But to that, I'd like to tell the story of Rock Around the Clock. Rock Around the Clock today seems like just an inevitably brilliant and toe-tappingly catchy song. But when it initially came out in 1954, it was essentially ignored by Americans. It charted on Billboard for, I think, one week and then fell off and was pretty clearly relegated to the dustbin of music history. And then in 1955, the director of this movie, Blackboard Jungle, which is one of these juvenile delinquency movies that were coming out in the 50s, he needs this exciting new tune to kick off the movie, to scare people a little bit in their movie seats. And he finds this pretty much discarded vinyl record of Rock Around the Clock. And he puts that song at the beginning of the movie, in the middle of the movie, and at the end of the movie. And it's only then, in 55, after Blackboard Jungle comes out, that the song becomes the number one song in the country and the first rock and roll song to ever hit that level in American history. So the same song, which sounded the exact same in 1954 when it was a dud, ended up becoming the hit of the century in 1955. And it's important for us, I think, to attend to these sort of stories because they remind us that success is not inevitable, that it is reliant on distribution, on circumstance, and also potentially on just pure luck. To your point there about this movie guy making that song a huge hit through putting it in the movie, how big a factor are the people behind the scenes, you know, sort of as to take from your title the words hit maker? Are there these Svengalis behind the scenes who are kind of directing our culture and making decisions that affect millions of people? In the 20th century, I think it was very easy for these so-called Svengalis to do so. When you had only a handful of television stations, only a handful of radio stations, it was very easy for gatekeepers, studio executives, for example, in music, to push popularity down into the market because they could essentially either just, you know, use payola to pay DJs to play the same songs over and over again, or maybe even pay record store owners to push certain vinyl records over others. But today, it's a lot harder for one person to engineer popularity like this at the same level because there are so many channels of exposure that essentially rather than taste being dictated top down, it's more likely to bubble up bottom up. That said, I do think there's still a lot of manipulation. The book is Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Derek Thompson is the author. Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.